BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. This is Front Row, and I'm your host, James Whiteside, principal dancer and choreographer with American Ballet Theater and the author of Center Center. Take a seat in the front row as I discuss the creative process and the business of creativity with the world's brightest stars. Ari Shapiro is known for many things. He is a longtime host of NPR's All Things Considered, a Yale graduate, a guest performer with Pink Martini, the band that bridges the gaps between jazz, classical, and pop. And if that wasn't enough, Ari tours as a cabaret performer with Alan Cumming in their original show, Och and Oi. Ari's first book, The Best Strangers in the World, out March 21st, 2023, takes us around the globe to reveal the stories behind narratives that are sometimes heartwarming, sometimes heartbreaking, but always poignant. Unsurprisingly, Ari is a fantastic interview. He tells me about his very first book, as well as hilarious listener hate mail, and whether he'll ever do television journalism in this very fabulous episode of Front Row with my friend Ari Shapiro. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Ari Shapiro, welcome to Front Row. I'm so happy to have you here. How are you doing? Oh, I'm honored to be a guest of yours. James, you're one of the first people who I've talked to about this book, so I'm I'm really eager to dig in with you. I'm one of the first people. I'm not the first. I'm offended. You're you're actually the well, I mean, I've talked to my editor and my um book agent, but no, you're the first well, I would say the first reader, but you were very honest <laughs> with me that the book didn't quite arrive in time for the interview. So you're the first um civilian? What's the appropriate uh, word? I'll take civilian. I've been called worse things. You're definitely the first ballet dancer I've spoken with. <laughs> you're the first drag queen. You're the first uh, DJ. You're the first many things I've spoken with about the book. <laughs> so, uh, dear listeners, I received the book today in the mail, and I got home Moments. from rehearsal about 40 minutes ago. So, uh, you know, let it be known that I have not yet read the book, but I have crafted a beautiful interview for Ari Shapiro during which you will gasp and weep. Gasp and weep? Also laugh, I hope. Gasp, laugh, and weep. Okay, fine. A, a triptych of emotions. A triptych, yeah. Like a like a equilateral triangle. <laughs> like a right triangle. Mm-hmm. So you uh I, I just can't believe this is your first book because you're a you're a man of so many talents and just go-getterness. I can't believe this is your first book. How did that happen? 
I always resisted writing a book because I feel like I'm attracted to forms of expression that are short lived. Uh-huh. I like to cook. And if a meal is bad, you can throw it out and make eggs or order pizza. <laughs> I like to perform on stage. As you know, if something goes wrong, unless it's a severe catastrophic injury, you can just do it again the next night. That. <laughs> and maybe it'll be better the next night. I make yeah. radio, which is sort of here and then it's gone. But I always felt like a book was the thing that will sit on a shelf forever and stare at you. You can't just wipe the slate clean and start the next day. And that was really intimidating to me. So I always resisted writing one until one day I realized that I had started. And then I just kept going until I had what you now see before you, this book, mm. The Best Strangers in the World, which is kind of a memoir in essays. And so it covers a lot of the most memorable people I've met through my work as a journalist, but also stories about performing as a singer and um, some stories from my childhood. And, and I think the through line is kind of this idea of finding ways to connect people and be an ambassador and make mm. the foreign seem a little bit less strange. So you said that you uh, appreciate the ephemeral, which I, I appreciate a lot as well, because being a, a performer on stage, you know, you're not allowed to film it in the audience. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's here and then it's gone. But it doesn't really make sense because you you live on the internet as well. Your work can be heard all day, every day on the internet. And the internet is forever. I know, but nobody, well, very rarely do people come up to me and say, wow, I love that interview you did a year or five years ago. People sometimes Mm -hmm. come up to me and say, I love that interview you did yesterday. And I kid you not, sometimes I can't remember what interview they're talking about because the pace of hosting a show like All Things Considered, which is two hours a day, five days a week, is so relentless that truly sometimes I just can't remember interviews that I did even a few days ago. But there are a few things that stick with me for years. You know, I've now been a journalist for more than 20 years. And there are some stories that people do come up to me and say, I will always remember the reporting you did. Like, for example, after the Pulse nightclub shooting is something that Mm. people mention a lot. And I realize that those stories have not only had an impact on listeners, but in a way they've sort of shaped who I am and they've shaped Mm -hmm. the way I practice journalism. And that was sort of what I wanted to explore in this collection of essays. Mm. Okay, I'd like to go you know, in a more broader world. And then I have some questions about the book as well. But, uh, you know, you do so many things, which I relate to a lot, actually, Uh, not sort of confining yourself in a little box. But how would you label yourself if you had to? Uh, You know, um, Alan Cumming and I created a show together that we have Mm -hmm. performed all over the country. It's called Och and Oi. He's the Scottish Och, I'm the Jewish Oi. And what we realized when we were creating the show was that even though he and I do very different things, in a way, we have the same mission, which is that we're both storytellers. We Mm -hmm. both try to connect people to each other and help people better understand one another. We help people see the world through the eyes of somebody else. And he does that by playing a different character. And I do that by taking people to Zimbabwe or Indonesia or, you know, Morocco or Spain and and telling the stories of the people who I meet Mm. there. But fundamentally, this is a long-winded way of saying what I do is try to help people understand the world around them. And I do Mm. that by performing with Alan Cumming and singing with Pink Martini and reporting on NPR and also writing a book in the same way that the things that you do are, you know, take many forms, whether it's drag, music, dance, but all of them are forms of 
I don't know what phrase would you use? Creative expression, storytelling. What's the what's the phrase that you use to describe the unifying conceit of all of your different projects? You know, I I've been dancing for so long that when people ask me what I am, what I do, I say I'm a dancer first because mm-hmm. that is it's the umbrella under which everything else lives. And you know, while I am not completely defined by being a dancer. It has shaped every interest that I have. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it's really the lens through which I view everything. I haven't been a journalist as long as you've been a dancer, or I I should say I didn't start at as early an age as you started Mm -hmm. dancing, because I'm a little older than you, and maybe I have been a journalist for as long as you've been a dancer. (laughs) I'm not going to do the arithmetic. But the same is true for me, that I'm first and foremost a journalist. I'm a journalist who happens to do a lot of other things. It's definitely not 50-50. that experience I have as a journalist certainly informs what I do as a performer and vice versa. I also want to note that because we're friends, I can tell you that the grinding sound you're hearing behind me right now is my dog chewing on a bone. She's very contented and happy. And if this were a broadcast of all things considered, I might take the bone away from her, but because (laughs) this is more of a friendly, cozy, casual conversation I'm going to let her keep gnawing on it. So that's the sound you're hearing. I'm not bothered by it. Um, You would be amazed at some of the sounds that uh, pervade front row with James Whiteside. There was a very cute dog. I I would like you to make some of those sounds and I will guess what they are the sounds of. Okay, this uh, this is a sound from a guest of mine who is a very um, prolific costume maker. All right, you ready? Mm, I'm ready. Go for it. <laughs> well, is that is that a dog snoring? You got it. It's a dog snoring. Okay, great. All right, give me another Very one. Very good. That was from um, Eric Winterling's episode. His dog Bumpers sits on the fabric cutting table where he was doing the interview Aww. and was very adorable. I had to... I had to say... Well, I hope Bumpers doesn't shed, because that could really ruin a costume. Bumpers is a hypoallergenic dog with hair, you know? Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Uh, Okay, we are digressing. I have really thoughtful questions for you, Ari. How dare you? (laughs) Sorry. Let me get out of your way and stop trying to turn the tables. (laughs) Okay, it's been seven years since you joined the All Things Considered team. Can you please tell me what goes into a standard segment or episode for you? What's the process? Hmm. Well, there is no standard segment. You know, I might one day be interviewing the head judge at a tamale festival and the next day be interviewing an executive who just left Twitter. And those are actually both real examples from the week that we're recording this. Um, But the common thread, I suppose, is that a producer and editor and I figure out what the interview is about. You know, in a sentence or two, what's our reason for having this conversation? We do some Mm. research, so we do as much background reading as we can. If it's somebody well-known, like a Twitter executive, there's going to be material out there, interviews they've done in the past, articles they've written, things they've said publicly or have been written about them. If it's somebody like the judge at a tamale festival, maybe we'll do a pre-interview with them, where I or a producer will call and chat with them. Based on all of that, we'll come up with a script, an introduction, a list of questions. And then I'll go into the studio and whether live or pre-taped, we'll ask those questions. If it's a pre-tape, I might talk to them for 10 or 20 minutes and it'll be four on the air. 
If it's live, obviously we're just doing it for the amount of time that's there. But here's the key. Having prepared and written the questions, in the moment, I allow myself to diverge from the written script because I think the most important part of a good interview is that it be a true conversation and mm. that you're listening and reacting and responding and following up in ways that might diverge from what you had planned on doing. And Absolutely. That, that, that's something that you can't anticipate. And so, um, and then if it is a pre-tape, then the producer and the editor will go away and cut that 10 minutes or whatever it is down to four minutes while I'm working on the next thing. And then they will bring back the cut of the interview and often, but not always, I'll listen to it before it airs and we'll make decisions. We'll have a conversation, we'll give feedback, and then you hear it on All Things Considered that night or the next day. So how many producers do you typically work with then at any given time? All of the ones on the show, which is a vague answer, but the staff of the show, I should know this, but we have, I don't know, 25 people? That's a guess. I, I, I don't know exactly how many people we have on staff, but okay. um, there's probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 different producers, all of whom I work with at one time or another. What are the age ranges of producers? The age range is everything from like right out of college, somebody who, you know, was just an intern for us a month ago, to people who've been there for longer than I have. And I've mm. been at NPR for 20 some years now. So, you know, as I record this... Producer is a very broad term. It's a very all-encompassing yeah. term, really. Yeah. I mean, as I've been doing these interviews for this podcast, I have become aware of my own idiosyncrasies as an interviewer. Oh, and I'd yeah. love to know what some of yours are, A, and B, what some of your pet peeves are as interviewers go. Oh, one of my idiosyncrasies is rather than asking a direct question like, do you like ice cream? I will phrase it as a statement. Like, I wonder whether you like ice cream, which I find annoying when I notice myself doing it. And so I try not to do it. I don't know why I do it, but it's a thing that I've observed in myself. Is it a way to make it more literary sounding, perhaps? You know what I think it is? I think it's an instinct to try to be less confrontational. Rather mm. than asking, why did you say that? Saying, I wonder why you said that feels less like I'm demanding something of a person and more like I'm inviting a person to open up to yeah. me in a conversation, which I get why I might lean towards that, but you can overdo it. And I think sometimes I do. Now, anyone who's heard this podcast episode will hear me doing that on the radio and I'll be like, <laughs> yep, check. Um, here's a weird physical tick, which is that, and actually this only happened after two weeks of hosting the show from home. I got back to NPR, I said two weeks, after two years of hosting all things considered from home during the lockdown, quarantine, pandemic, what have you. I've heard of it. I got it. back to the studio and I realized that like every time my mic opened and it was time for me to say something into a live open mic, I sort of weirdly propped my arm on the arm of the studio chair with my elbow out to the side. And it took me a little while to notice that I was doing that every time I was talking live. And it was only mm. when I was in the studio where we broadcast All Things Considered. I don't know why I was doing it, but I now I still feel that urge, that instinct, and I have to actively resist because as a broadcaster, as a host, as a public radio person, 
the goal is not to be sort of an orator to, you know, broadcast to millions. The goal is to sound like you're having a conversation with somebody. And so mm. if I'm contorting my body in a weird way, or if I'm doing some strange vocal tick, that's not the way you talk in conversation. Which brings me to one of my pet peeves. In broadcast journalism, there are so many words people use that they never use in real life. And sometimes I will be given a draft of an intro or questions that somebody else wrote that are suggestions for me, which are super helpful. And I would always so much rather have that than a blank page. But inevitably, words find their way into those scripts that I would never use if I were just talking with you. And so when those words show up, I just have to replace them. I mean, to give one example that was just in the script today, um, blah, blah, blah has long been an issue. Like if you and I were talking, we would never say this has long been a concern for me. But we've mm -hmm. both heard that a million times in broadcast journalism. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Yes, it's old English. Is that it? Has long been. Yeah, I guess we want to sound more formal and dignified or something. Yeah. Yes, that's really, it, it's a formality, which I appreciate. I like formality in journalism because we've seen the counter, you know, the, the opposite. I think there is a happy medium. I think if you have somebody over to dinner at your house, there's a level of formality, but you're not going to speak to them in a stilted way. I want there to be comfort and familiarity and um, true conversationalism but also no affect. Mm -hmm. No, I hear that. I, I, I see a lot of similar affect in dance criticism. Ooh, I think on. it's a similar, um, people want to appear literary in their critiques and they use really fabulous words that are just hilarious to me, like brio and oh um, my god yes aplomb and, and you know there are things that are highly mm -hmm. descriptive of dance but they just make me chuckle because it's almost camp how totally um, like fancy they are yeah i see the same thing in restaurant reviews when people talk about like i don't know they use the word suds instead of beer which is not a fancy example but like nobody would say suds, suds. yeah you know i've never heard that i don't really drink beer what do you drink tequila no, I like whiskey, but you know, oh. my job is too hard to be drunk. Well, you don't have to be drunk to enjoy a nice whiskey. No, I know. I'm, but even, even just like, I can't drink every day because I get dehydrated and feel terrible at work. Yeah. You know, even just a little bit, but that's just me. I'm sure plenty of people are boozed up the wazoo. I'm amazed at the number of ballet dancers who smoke cigarettes. When lung capacity yeah. is an issue, that blows my mind. But that's, that's an, that doesn't happen anymore. Really? There are a lot of people who do the, the like vape stick thing now, mm -hmm. which I just think is insane. I mean, the cigarette is really the most satisfying form of smoking. If you ask me, I don't smoke, but, um, I have. Yeah. I've actually never finished a whole cigarette. It just they makes really me a little bit dizzy you. and nauseated. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> I speaking of digressing here. So during the <sighs> pandemic, my friend Isabella Boylston and her husband oh, Dan. I love her. Yes. Um, yeah, she's fabulous. Principal dancer with ABT for the like two people who might not know her. Um, she, myself, and her husband went to my uncle's lake house, and we went out on the lake in a boat, and 
decided that we were going to smoke cigars together. And so it was a beautiful sunset. We had uh, glasses of wine and cigars. And let me tell you, I thought I was going to die. Just from the cigars? From the cigar. Yes. Like you you don't, you didn't actually inhale it, did you? Yeah. No, no, no. But why did it make you? Cigars take a long time to get through. It was like a half an hour of smoking, but not smoking something. And it sort of puff, puff. Yeah. And so when we got back to the house, Dan, her husband and I went up to our rooms and had to take a half an hour nap because we were so exhausted from the cigar. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, beware of cigars, everybody out there. I haven't smoked a cigar in a very long time. I think that's the first and last cigar I've smoked. And that's okay with me. <laughs> it's good to know that about yourself, James. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, let's get back to my pre-written questions that you yeah. hate. No, um, I love them. I love them. I love the questions. The questions are fabulous. I love the questions as prompts for conversational detours that one might not have anticipated. I know. I'm just teasing you. Okay. Has TV ever called you or called to you? I have never um, been tempted by a specific job in TV news that I thought would be a better job than the one that I do on All Things Considered. Because to give an example, I did this huge reporting project in October that took me from Senegal to Morocco to Spain connecting the dots between climate change, global migration, and the rise of the political far right. And we did about a dozen stories and we did long form podcast episodes. And then I come back to my headquarters and interview pop stars and authors. And then I interview people who are in the news. And um, it's really hard for me to think of any particular job in TV that it would allow me that would allow me that range. And so it's nothing against TV per se. I have a lot of close friends who work in TV news and it's, I I do love radio, but it's not, I would never go into television. It's well, show me a job in TV that offers the sort of freedom and range as the job that I have now. Does it have anything to do with anonymity? The anonymity of radio? That is not the reason I stay in radio, but I do kind of love that. I have just the right, for me, level of recognition, where every now and then somebody will say, oh, it's so nice to meet you. I really love your work. But I can fall asleep on an airplane and drool on myself and not worry that somebody will point and say, look, it's Ari Shapiro of NPR drooling on himself on an airplane. (laughs) So it's just that sweet spot. And do people recognize your voice more often than your face? Very rarely. People uh, occasionally recognize my voice. It always surprises me when people do. More often, I think it's somebody who follows me on Instagram or something like that, recognizing my face, or maybe they'll see my credit card at a store when I'm swiping a card or something like that, and they'll recognize my name. When they steal your credit card. (laughs) Exactly. So um, I also want to talk about the the NPR Consider This podcast. Oh, yeah. I know there are a bunch of hosts now. Are you still working on that? Yeah, I'm one of four hosts of both All Things Considered and Consider This. So the way it Uh works is that on any given day, two of us are hosting the radio show, one of us is hosting the podcast, and one of us is on assignment. So in a typical month, I tend to do about two weeks of the radio show, one week of the podcast, 
and one week working on projects. Um, of course, that varies because sometimes you have a big overseas trip like the thing I mentioned, Senegal, Morocco, Spain. But having four hosts of the show is so great because it just allows everybody an opportunity to kind of give and take in different ways. I also feel very lucky that the four of us all get along. Um, but you were asking about the podcast, Consider This, which has been a really fun way to kind of take one story and dive deep as opposed to the many different things that we consider every day on the radio show. And what have you learned about the differences between doing the podcast and the radio show? Radio is serendipitous. You turn it on and hear whatever happens to be there. And podcasts are things that people seek out. And Mm -hmm. a podcast works narrative chronologically in a way that radio may or may not. You know, we have a two-hour radio show that people don't listen to in a two-hour cycle. But we have a 15-minute podcast that people listen to beginning to end as a podcast. So you really have to think, for Consider This at least, of what you're doing narratively, how you're pulling people in, where you're taking them, and where you're setting them down at the end of the journey. Mm -hmm in a way that is not necessarily true of a two-hour program where you might have an eight-minute piece, a three-and-a-half-minute piece, a light little two-minute thing, and Mm -hmm. then a deep dive, whatever. That's interesting. Do you prefer one medium over the other? I really like audio storytelling, and I wouldn't say that I prefer the long form or the kind of quick hit thing. I, I have lots of colleagues who are passionate about a particular beat. They're political junkies, or they love national security, or something like that. And for me, it's always been about the variety. It's about being an omnivore and being able to change gears and touch on a lot of different things. Mm. And so if I were only in the studio doing the radio show all the time, or if I were only doing big long-form projects, I think I would get a little bit itchy, claustrophobic, stir-crazy. and being able to go from one thing to another keeps me engaged in the same way that being able to go from journalism to pink martini and singing live on stage and using my vacation time to do that. And then coming back to work, it's not that it feels like vacation necessarily to be with pink martini, but it just feels so different that it recharges me for the thing that I go back to. Absolutely. And you know, it does sound like a very varied kind of existence you know, going through the different versions of what you do. And I want to go back to the TV thing. Okay, so say a network was interested in creating a television version of All Things Considered that oscillated between, you know, short-form interviews, um, long-form stories in which you travel from place to place, and it's like a huge project, and even more like docu-series style Mm -hmm. Uh, stuff where they're just following the life of a nomadic journalist who is on the radio. I mean, I would watch that. Look, I think it's fun to try different things. I, after years in radio journalism, tried writing a book for the first time. If somebody Mm -hmm. came up to me and said, we want to make an eight-part series about your travels as a journalist or a food program or something like that, I'm enjoying exploring different kinds of storytelling and connection Mm. and ways of reaching people, which is, you know, part of what the theme of the entire book is. So I certainly don't have some kind of an allergy to television. Um, It just depends on what kinds of stories people want to tell. Yeah. And if you had the choice. And to be frank, too much storytelling 
in TV journalism now, I think, is beholden to the pressures of capitalism. And that forces people into small boxes that make it tough for them to sort of do their best work as often as, as I think many would like to. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. So if you had the option to create, say, a one-man show using your book as the basis, versus, or perhaps even with songs and music, versus uh, making a scripted series out of the source material of your book, which would you be more amenable to? Well, I've done one-man shows before. I've done cabaret shows at venues in New York like Joe's Pub and 54 Below. Mm-hmm. Um I've never written a, a, a TV script or a screenplay. And I think I would need someone to hold my hand and tell me how mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. I also think in terms of like a, I mean, if you're talking about a hypothetical show about my own life, it would be really helpful for me to have somebody with the aesthetic distance to reflect back to me what that would look and sound like. Mm-hmm. Because I think I might just be too close to the source material to really know what's most interesting about it. I'm actually really curious to see as people start to read this book, as you know, from having written a memoir and essays, the chapter about your mother was profoundly compelling and sort of the thing that everybody talked about, I think more than any other chapter. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious whether there is going to be one essay in this book that people gravitate towards one account that people keep talking about. Mm -hmm. And if there is at this point, when we're recording this, I truly don't know what that's going to be, which is sort of like, I don't know. It's exciting and fun. Um, Did you know when you had written the book, but people hadn't read it yet? Were you like, Oh, this is, this is the chapter. This is the one. You know, I, my book is really silly in parts, but it's also serious in parts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course I, I was asked to write a book about my life as a ballet dancer, and I didn't do that at all. I didn't mm-hmm. want to do that at this stage of my life. I wanted to write things that uh, were interesting to me, and that happened to be stories about my dead pets. It happened to be a fake play that takes place in the Casablanca airport, and it happened to be a very long chapter chronicling the life of my mother. And when I finished the book, that was the the last chapter I wrote. Oh, and, really? Yeah, and I wow, I wanted to you know have the experience of writing everything silly and fun before it before I really dove into trying to like honor my dead mom. 
you know. So you always knew that you would be going there eventually. Yes, I. That was a huge motivator for me because hmm. it's the most important story to me. So, um, and when I finished it, I was like, "Oh yes, this is." I knew it was good, and then people liked it, and it made sense, which yeah. felt really good. I have not yet had that experience. The closest thing I had was I published an essay in The Atlantic that at the time I had not yet announced that I was writing a book. So I didn't say this is an excerpt from the book, but it was. Mm. And it was about covering the Pulse nightclub shooting. And um, at the end of that reporting project, which of course was meaningful for all kinds of reasons, realizing that actually years earlier I had been to Pulse and I had befriended these two bartenders and then I got back in touch with one of them all these years later. It's a mm. whole kind of full circle thing. Um, but it was the big thing that is a shift for me that I'm not accustomed to was centering myself on the narrative and making the story mm. about me. And that yeah. felt very outside of my comfort zone because as a journalist, it's not supposed to be about you, right? <laughs> and so when I published that in the Atlantic for the fifth anniversary of the Pulse Massacre and people reacted really positively to it, it was this huge sense of relief that, oh, this mm. is not only something I can do, but also something that's okay, that is welcome, that is a valuable addition, that is not an addition to, you know, the universe of things that people say about things, that is not just kind of self-absorbed, mm -hmm. navel-gazy. Um, so I had that little bit of affirmation in June of 2021, but it's been a minute. That's deeply encouraging. Oh, wait, or was it June of 2022? Anyway, it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah, I... I look forward to reading that. And, you know, like you said about turning the focus inward, um, making, you know, these stories known about yourself is, it's very scary because um, yes, vulnerability girl. is very difficult. <laughs> and, you know, especially for, for me, when I was writing about my mother, you know, I was tasked with writing a book about myself. And then my favorite part about writing my book about myself was actually telling my mother's story. And mm -hmm. it's funny that that's the one that people resonated most with, even though that's not what they asked for. So sometimes you got to give people what they don't know they want. Yeah. Okay. So I'm formulating this theory that I might not agree with even as soon as I articulate it, but I'm going <laughs> to float it and tell me what you think. Okay. There are private introverted people and there are also performers. And I wonder if it's in some way more challenging for public-facing performative people to be vulnerable and introspective mm. than it is for introverted people. Because people like you and people like me are always presenting a version of ourselves to the public. Mm -hmm. And the Venn diagram overlap between that version of ourselves and our full selves is not a one-to-one -one complete circle. Mm -hmm. And a memoir is much closer to that kind of vulnerable interior full self. Mm -hmm. And as people who are constantly presenting some kind of a mask, it's a little scarier than um, it would be for somebody who is just sitting at home. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know if I, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I agree with that. What do you So think? I don't believe it's a blanket rule. But for me, it's very applicable. And in writing, I felt it was the first time that I could really speak openly without presenting this sort of 
Leo character, this boss man, this um like this yes queen person. Um you know what I mean? You mean an astrological Leo character, like yes. born in August kind of Leo? Okay, yes. just making sure. I was like, who's Leo? Is there do you have charming. a character named Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Especially you know, as a drag queen, you're wearing a suit of armor. As a DJ, you've got this deck in front of you. Like as a ballet dancer, these are all forceful, strong, kind of protective ways of presenting yourself to the world. Even if you are exerting yourself, you know, doing acrobatic, gymnastic um, feats. Kicking and flipping, honey. Kicking and flipping. <laughs> uh, I would like to talk about your... Uh, your guest performances with Pink Martini. And then I, I want to get back to. to the book a little bit more. Great. But um, actually, no, I lied to you because I have a question about journalism. Oh, sure. Uh, in relation to art. Because, okay, I don't know if you know this, but the whole premise of this podcast is discussing the business of art with artists and how they got to where they are and how they make art a viable life. Hmm. Do you believe journalism is an art? In its highest form, yeah. Hmm. Journalism is such a broad term. I mean, reporting on the stock market's ups and downs, just with graphs, is a form of journalism. And so is recording oral histories with people who lived through historical moments. Hmm. Um, a first-person essay can be journalism, and so can a hard-hitting interview with a politician. I don't know that all of those would qualify as capital A art. Mm. But if you've ever read a piece in a magazine that has moved you, or if you've ever heard an audio documentary that has made you sort of stay in the driveway until it was over, yeah, I think that's an art. I think mm -hmm. storytelling is an art, and storytelling mm -hmm. is one of many qualities that good journalism has. I mean, it also has to be accurate. It has, you know, like in the same way that ballet is both a discipline and an art, I mm -hmm. think journalism has a lot of components in addition to the artistry. But at its best, there is artistry. Yes. And when, at least for ballet, it is only exceptional when it is truly exceptional. Because I think mediocre ballet, um, this is rather callous and I apologize uh, but it is what I've experienced it has to be exceptional to move me mm -hmm. and I'm really grateful that I get to be surrounded by some of the best dancers in the world because it inspires me and it levels me up and I could see how that could be really true in journalism as well there was something that Ira Glass the creator of This American Life said once I'm paraphrasing and I heard it a long time ago so I might be misquoting him Mm -hmm. But it was something along the lines of, you know, when you've, when, when you're writing a story, when you're doing a piece, there should every minute, every 30 seconds, every two minutes be something that only you would do in that particular way. Something, whether it's a turn of phrase or the way you're using tape or a description or something that has your fingerprint on it, that mm. brings you joy, that and I, I think about that when, of course, when you're reporting the news, you want to be fair and you want to be objective and you don't want to be self-indulgent. But you also, if you're good at it, 
um, want to make it something that people want to engage with and hear and absorb and remember. And the only way to do that is by bringing a level of artistry to it. Yeah, I think that that's the human element too. Yeah. Connecting with people through the stories you're telling and uh, not being beaten down by reality, being commiserated with and empathic through storytelling is, is the goal, I would imagine. There's also something, I think, what you and I do have in common. That was a grammatically terrible sentence. <laughs> What you and I do have, has, have, whatever, I'm going to forge ahead, something else in common, which is that we're both supposed to sort of disappear into our role. Mm. But at the same time, who we are inevitably informs the way we do our job. Amen. And if we try to ignore that or set it aside, we will not do our jobs as well. And so one of the things that I interrogate in this book is how being Jewish, how being queer, how being from Oregon, how being married, how all of these things affect the way that I practice journalism in a way that might be at odds with the idea of the view from nowhere, which is this old term that people use to describe kind of the just the facts reporting. Mm -hmm. And for you, you're, you're disappearing into a character, but also everything that you, James Whiteside, bring to your performance is relevant. And in the same way that my best stories couldn't be written by an AI algorithm, your best performances cannot be executed by the highest tech robot. And, you know, that can go either way. That can work for us or against us because yeah. people can come to see me and really see me and not like who they see, not like the person mm -hmm. that lives beneath Romeo or Siegfried or whoever. And I think that's got to be tough for you as well and which actually brings me rather seamlessly but also like there are people who hate listening to patty lupone sing i'm not among them but if i were patty lupone <laughs> i don't think i would be offended by that because patty lupone has a distinctive voice and style and yeah. it's not for everyone and that's okay like not everything has to be for everyone there's a fabulous casey musgrave song uh that waxes poetic like you can't be everybody's cup of tea, blah, 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 country song, country song. It's fabulous. Sing it, Casey Musgraves. Um, you know, speaking of, you know, harsh critics, you get some of the most <laughs> ludicrous reader mail. Oh, and I love it I adore so much. when you post about it. Can you just my tell favorite. my listeners a few of your favorites, if you can remember any? You know what? They are in the book. Wait, you've, got a, bu you've got a burn book? Oh, no, no, no. Your actual book. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, so uh, may I just do a brief reading of for course. you? Of course. I've always considered hate mail to be a badge of honor. My first paid job at NPR was as a temporary editorial assistant on Morning Edition, and one of my duties was to go through the show's email inbox and forward listener messages to the correspondents. I became intimately familiar with a taxonomy of hate mail. There were partisan messages, nitpicky ones, misogynistic ones. I dutifully forwarded all of them. And if a listener wasn't writing in about a particular correspondent, but rather ranting about our programming in general, I would anonymously respond on behalf of the show, ending my generic reply with, thank you for listening. When I started reporting my own stories for NPR and getting my own hate mail, it felt like a sign that I had finally arrived. I savored it. I started to keep a file folder of the ones that came on actual paper. After the arrival of Twitter, I created a photo album on my phone for screen grabs of hate tweets. 
By the time I became a host of All Things Considered and graduated from a cubicle to an office, I decided that it was time for the world to see the best of these messages. The side of my office bookshelf faces an interior window at NPR headquarters, so I taped some of my favorite letters to the window-facing side of the bookshelf. People waiting to meet with me in my office could kill time reading these messages. There's one from a man, they're usually men, who called me a faggy, pushy, annoying smartass. Another comes from a listener who told me I made his hair hurt by referring to the Queen of England. The person of interest is officially Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of Great Britain, Ireland, and the British Dominions beyond the seas, Queen Defender of the Faith, this listener explained. One letter writer wanted to inform me that a man may be hanged and he may be hung, but the two words have very different meanings. (laughs) And there's one letter from a person who objected so strongly to the way I pronounced data that they felt compelled to write in and let me know that each time you say data, which was many times, it is as if you want to slap your listeners. (laughs) My all-time favorite listener letter is not on that wall, though. It's a postcard that arrived the first time I guest-hosted Morning Edition more than a decade ago, the one that really made me feel like I was on the path to figuring out what it meant to be the first Ari Shapiro and not just the next Nina Totenberg. That's a reference to something I said earlier. The postcard has a picture of tulips and the stamps are doves of peace. It reads, Dear Ari, please butch up. I find a daily dose of your personality annoying. I'm a person too. D. Emerson, Miami, Florida. Wow. I framed it when it arrived. It has sat in a place of pride on my desk ever since, as I have steadfastly refused to butch up year after year. I don't know who D. Emerson is. I don't know their gender, though one can assume. I am sure he had no idea his postcard would have such staying power. He included no return address, so I've never been able to contact him. But if I could, I would simply tell Mr. Emerson, thank you for listening. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, my goodness. And what yes. a great little reading you got in there, too. First time I've read from my book. Um, okay, those are fabulous. Can we talk about the audiobook? Have you started that yet? Uh, I'm about to. As of this recording that you and I are doing on December 1st, I am two days away from my first audiobook recording session. Do you have okay. any tips for me? Oh, Wow. Um, I don't even know where to begin. The audio... I don't want to scare you, though. Oh, no. I don't want to scare you, but I might. A friend of mine told me he was completely hoarse and had lost his voice by the end of it. I think there's very little I hated more than doing my audiobook. Wow. Why? What was so awful? And it's really weird because my... The... You know, as... Like, between ebook and paper and um audiobook the audiobook of my book has done very well so interesting i don't understand how that happened because i was in a tiny booth for 8 hours a day reading my own book which just made me uncomfortable how many days did it take you it was 4 days okay and you know my book's not that long so i must have really been botching it <laughs> <laughs> why and- did you hate it so much uh, it made me deeply uncomfortable. And um, my book has a lot of sort of tongue-twisty silliness going on. Oh, and right. one chapter specifically is in the format of a play. Yeah, and that must have been complicated. It was. And I had a, there's a character uh, that was, I believe I had in print, he's Irish or something. And then oh, no. I, I don't know how to do you a had to do Irish, Irish accent. accent. So oh, no. for the audiobook, 
I was biffing it so hard. And the <laughs> port, I have to go find this right now. The port, uh, the there was like an audio tech and a producer listening, and I was just beat red trying to do this Irish accent and just doing a terrible, abominable job. So after a while, they click into the audio for the booth and they said, um, why don't you try a different accent? And so I was like, oh gosh, what do I, I, I don't know. So I, I think I just made him British or something like generic Brit. I would have asked to get some great Irish actress to just sub in and do those sentences. We do not have budget for Saoirse Ronan. <laughs> uh, Unfortunately. No, you're going to do um, great. You don't have any crazy you. accents to do, I presume. None. No, no crazy accents. Okay, so you're going to be fine. Um, Thank you. And it, it's going to sell boatloads, I promise you. Inshallah. From your mouth to God's ears. Yeah. Uh, we were going to talk about Pink Martini, but yeah. you know, I might shelf that because we're running out of time here um but i have one question regarding singing yeah will you ever release a solo album i'm not gonna say never but i'm not a songwriter and i don't know what that solo album would be i have loved doing one or two songs on each of pink martini's last Mm -hmm. several albums Mm -hmm. and it would be fun to make a solo album, but look, I don't know that anybody buys albums anymore anyway. I think people release three song EPs or they release a single every few months or do albums even matter if you're not Beyonce? Yes. Yes, they do. I well, I feel like that. Speaking of capitalist driven reality, yeah. I think if we don't make albums as peons, then we are not doing our duty to art and the world. We have voices too. We're people too. <laughs> Thank you for I'm listening. I'm a person too, to quote that. <laughs> yeah. Postcard. I think it's very important to make things because you want to. Just like being on TV, making an album is not something that I would ever rule out, mm. but the right opportunity has not presented itself. What if, um, if I were a, a producer of records and I worked with a label, uh, I would, hire you to make a sort of great American songbook kind of collection of 10 songs with, you know, a piano and a, and a small band and make a very beautiful jazzy album. But that's just me. That would be fun. I don't know that the world needs another person singing songs from the great American songbook. On Can you album. make them all gay? I would listen to that. I could try. Will you duet with me on Baby It's Cold Outside? You know I would. That that, that The All most right. highly inappropriate holiday song. All right. That's one of the tracks. I guess we're making a holiday album. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's going to be a holiday album. Oh, Santa. Uh, no, what other song could you and I duet on? Um, Islands in the Stream? You know, I don't think that's in my range. We're going to have to really explore keys okay. for that one. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> so, okay. I like to ask singers to sing on my show. Is there a line from one of your favorite songs that you could give us in a beautiful dulcet tone? You know what song I'm so taken with? As I said, we're recording this in December, but I just think it's a lovely tune. And Pink Martini does a rockin' version of it with a Brazilian samba band, and 
lyrics in Arabic and French and um, Scots Gaelic, um, Gaelic, is Old Lang Syne. You know, I love a sing along. I love something that everybody can sing yeah, together. You want to sing Old Lang Syne with me? Uh, I don't think that would be wise. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know the words. It's like Happy Birthday, you can just holler it. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? You got this. Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? For old lang syne, my dear, for old lang. You're just kind of. I'm not doing it because I'm embarrassed and I'm not confident enough to sing with you right now. But that's how I feel. We'll just finish it out. We'll take a cup of kindness yet for old Lang Syne. And I just think thematically, that song about, you know, we'll see each other again. We'll toast to our friendship. And we know that even if we're far apart, we're not gone. It's a nice sentence. It really is. What was that cup of kindness business? Say that again. We'll take a cup of kindness yet oh, for old Bangsa. I love that. Is it taste a cup of kindness? Take a cup. We'll order a venti cup of kindness from the Starbucks on the corner. 20 ounces of <laughs> kindness for me. Do you know the, uh, sorry, I, I got too shy to sing with you. I apologize. It's okay. Also, I it's don't right. know the words. Um, well, they're easy to learn. You still got time to sing them before I know, New I've years. got a whole month. I'll have to. Do my homework. Wait, do you know the Judy Garland version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas? Oh, yeah, with the dark, dark lyrics. It may be your last. You know, I, that sort of yeah. aligns with Old Lang Syne for me a little bit in its hmm. melancholy. It's a little depressing, yeah. but great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful it song. It really is. I want to know if, sorry, if we're going to go back to your book, I'm really jumping all over here. Um, I want to finish on your book because that's why we're here, because when I read it, I'm going to love it. <laughs> you can finish all over my book, James. Oh my God. Hey, what this is this is for children. Sorry. I, nothing I said I'm there kidding. was inappropriate. Uh-huh. Uh, oh gosh. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. You said you wanted to finish on my yes, book. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Okay, The Best Strangers in the World. That's the title of your book. Uh, how yeah. did you pick the title? It actually comes from a work of art that a friend of mine created years ago that has hung in my house for about a decade. And it is, my friend is the photographer, and he made this piece that is big block letters on a white background. And in the block letters, you can kind of see the vague silhouette of a person figure um and the work of art says the best strangers in the world live here and i love the idea of the best strangers in the world because in a way this book is almost like a memoir told through other people's stories i mean there's a lot of my own life in there but there's also a lot of the people who were strangers when i met them who have shaped me who might not even remember that they ever met me but that have intersected with my life in a way that I will never forget. Mm. And so as I was sort of grasping for a title for the book, I looked at that work of art, which I see every day, and it felt kind of appropriate. I also, you know, the names that I was 
toying with all either focused on me, on the reader audience, or on the people whose stories I'm telling. And I really like that The Best Strangers in the World is a title that centers the people whose stories I'm telling. Even if at the end of the day, this book is a memoir that is about me, I think it wouldn't exist without, without them. What were the alternate titles that you were thinking about? Um, I will privately send you the Google Doc, Mm -hmm. but there is nothing that I would be comfortable sharing right now with you. (laughs) I had um, one other title other than Center Center for mine that I was thinking about. What's that? And uh, it was Hyperactive Monster. Oh, wow. That's a very different vibe from Center Center. Yeah. Hyperactive Monster. Was that something that somebody once called you or what? My mother, yes. (laughs) Wow. Wow. It's like the um the title of the book High Risk Homosexual by Edgar yes, Gomez, I yes. think is his name, which is something that a doctor described yeah. him as. Oof. Being alive is hard. <laughs> and also so fun. It's the best. Yeah, I better than the alternative anyway. <laughs> we wouldn't really know. <laughs> True. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for for being on front row with me. I love talking to you. Thank you for being a friend and an inspiration to me. And I really hope to see you perform very soon. Uh, my boyfriend's mom actually had the privilege of going to see Ari perform in, um, where was that? In San Francisco with Alan Cummings. In Cumming. San Francisco, yeah. James, I love every time our lives intersect. And I'm so glad you're dipping a toe into the world of audio storytelling with your podcast. And I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And everybody, you must, must, must go purchase The Best Strangers in the World out March 21st, 2023. And I'm hoping this podcast is out either that week or the week after. So, you know, stay tuned. And uh, follow Ari on Instagram. And what other social media platforms are you on? I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Ari Shapiro. And I also just launched a website, which is Ari Shapiro dot work. W-O-R-K. Not W-E-R-K. Not W-E-R-Q. Wait, so dot work is a thing now? Work. Dot work, honey. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Butch up. All right. Ari, thank you so much for joining me on Front Row. Until next time. Thank you for being a friend in the words of the Golden Girls. Don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast. And if you like it, share it with your friends or on social media. You can follow me on all social platforms by searching James Whiteside. My book, Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir, is available everywhere in all formats. Front Row uses music from the song A-Flat by Black Violin. Check out the show notes on jamesbwhiteside.com for exclusive video and audio from this podcast. (laughs) 